One time I went uh, horseback riding with uh, my family, and uh, we were, well, you technically is horseback riding, but really we're riding elephants. It's one of those uh, horseback rides where you get on and the animal just follows the tail in front of it. You don't really have any control. Now, the person in the very front had control. They, uh, they rode a real horse. The rest of us were sitting on horses with uh, minds of elephants. And I got kind of got tired of just, you know, following there in line, and so I tried to turn the horse, and it wouldn't turn. Um, I pulled the reins, it wouldn't turn. I kicked it. I mean, I kicked it. I lifted my legs, both legs, and just wham, slam. And this horse just continued, you know, walking with no movement. So finally, I reached up almost to the bridle and pulled back on the rein and tied it around the saddle horn to where the horse's neck is like this. And uh, instead of turning, now he's walking sideways, but still going straight. If you've ever been on a horse that does that, don't, they don't want to turn. You turn them, and so they, they'll turn, but they're still going to go the direction that you want them to go. Well, finally, I got this horse to go two feet off the path onto, uh, around a tree. And as soon as it figured out that it was off the path, the fastest I went on the whole ride was him running back to get back in line and to get his five distance from the five feet distance from the tail in front of him. And I got to thinking that this is just how we are as humans. Be it humans or horses, we are all creatures of habit. I saw a funny cartoon. At least it was funny to me. Nobody laughed first hour. That's all right. Y'all make me feel good, all right? This it says invocation, hymn, responsive reading, special music, offering, sermon, invitation, benediction, and one guy tells the other it's the order of worship. That's written in stone. Okay, that's that's the point of this. It's not said, but uh, thank you, Father. <laughs> but that's that's the point here. It's written in stone, and don't you dare try to change it. And we get these kind of traditions going in our church. And we get these kind of traditions going in our lives because this is the way we are. We like this. We like the security of a predictable routine. You know, as long as here I am, a horse human on my path, and nobody changes me, okay? I can, I've walked down this path every day. They strap that saddle on my back. I carry some person, some a little heavier than others, some a little lighter than others, but this is the path I walk down. That's the tail I follow, and that's my job in life. Don't try to pull me off that path. But if anybody ever does, we get all kind of upset. And if they pull us, we may turn, but like that horse, we still want to go this way. Or if they finally do get us to get off the path, some circumstance requires us to actually change, we will do all we can to quickly run back and to get in line with our comfort zone and our routine and that rut that gives us the security. We like routine. We don't like change. The only kind of change that we like is the change that we initiate, like a haircut or like uh, something perhaps a little more serious, like a job transfer that we initiate. You know, as long as it's a change for our better that we perceive, that's a fine. That's a fine change. Or even if, and the reason that we have that kind of an attitude, even if it's a major change, is because we're in control. But there are even issues that we aren't in control of 
that we are comfortable with because we predict them, like the seasons. We don't have any control over that, but we know it's going to happen. Okay, we'll have nine months of summer and three months of uh, uh, spring slash fall and about a week of winter here in Texas. And we know that. We can predict and plan for that. But uh, even so, even though there's a major major changes, we know it's coming, and even though we can't control it, we still have some sense of security about it because we expect it. Well, the kind of change that we don't like is that kind that pulls us off the path, that kind that we don't see coming, that we don't initiate, that we don't anticipate, but it yet, but it yet it pulls us off the path, and like that horse, we want to run right back into our tradition. There were some religious leaders that came up to Jesus one time and asked him, said, why don't your disciples, or he says, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders and don't wash their hands before they eat bread? And Jesus turned back and said, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So we have the same problem that the religious leaders did. We always get down on them for doing stuff, but if you think about it, we're honest, we're getting down on ourselves. Because we do a lot of the same things that they do. We are comfort in our, we are in our comfort zone and we like that because it doesn't challenge us to change areas of our character that need to be changed. If we don't ever have to change, we don't ever grow. And yet God is committed to us changing because God is committed to us growing. And if that means that we will not respond to what he says in this book, but we will stick to our traditions as opposed to the commandment of God then we may find the almighty hand of God pulling our reins and wrapping it around the saddle horn so that we will go the direction that he wants us to go. And that's what we see happening and as we continue with Joseph today. Let's look at this. In Genesis chapter 45, Joseph's father, Jacob, has a moving experience, literally. And figuratively, literally, he moves his residence Figuratively, everything about his spiritual life is being required to change. The same with the brothers. It's really a moving experience for the whole clan. And as David explained to you or mentioned a little bit of the story, if you've been with us, you know what's been happening. Last week we saw Joseph reveal his identity to his brothers. His brothers thought he was dead for 22 years. Now they come to Egypt. This guy is the head of Egypt. They're to buy grain from him. This guy's put them through a series of tests that awaken their conscience to an evil they've done to their brother. Lo and behold, we found out last week, this guy is their brother. And instead of retaliating, though, he graciously forgives them. And we saw, uh, talked about how to forgive last week. First 15 verses. Well, now, Genesis 45 and verse 16, we pick up the story of this moving experience. And incidentally, the story we're about to read uh, is, obviously it's true, but it's something that you and I deal with. Because how God motivated Jacob to move is how God motivates us to change as well. Verse 16, Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered to do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. And do not be concerned with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. 
Then the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And to his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. Now why did he say that? Well, remember what we talked about last week. When they went back, were, were to go back up to their father, this was not going to just be a good news trip. This was going to be a good news slash confession trip. Because in order to say Joseph is alive, they had to explain why they have for 22 years told their father Joseph is dead. I.e., they sold him into slavery. And so the temptation is going to be once they get out of Egypt and un away from the authority of Joseph, obviously they're not going to quarrel there. But on the week-long trip home now, as they get to thinking about this, wait a minute, we're going to have to explain to our father, you know, this is a week sitting in a saddle is a long time to think about how to confess. And uh, it might have been tempting, perhaps for Reuben or Judah or one of the others perhaps that are unnamed who weren't quite as gung-ho about betraying Joseph initially, to want to try to lay the blame a little heavier on the others. Try to say, hey, Simeon, why don't you do the confessing? You're the one who really, you know, who ought to be speaking. And so Joseph tells them, don't quarrel on the way. It's almost like he anticipates this. You know, it's time to forgive. I've forgiven you. You need to forgive one another. You're going to go up. You're going to confess. You're going to bring my father down. And we're going to move on. Don't quarrel on the journey. So now they come to the father. And the hard part begins of them telling him what they've done. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. And when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Remember that Jacob had no idea what was going to happen. The last time we saw this father, he made the statement, If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He fully expected, or at least anticipated, the possibility that he would never see his children again. And so how shocked he must have been to see all his sons come back up in the time, uh, as soon as they could, with not only their donkeys, but also these other 20 donkeys, and Benjamin, the favorite son, and Simeon, the imprisoned son, and news of Joseph coming up, that, uh, that Joseph is still alive. Imagine how shocked he would have been. And after 22 years of believing this lie, it's no wonder he was stunned. Okay, now wait a minute. You tell me he's dead for 22 years, and now you're telling me he's alive? Okay, I mean, we probably would struggle believing as well. And yet, what was it that changed his mind? It says, when he heard the words, and when he saw the wagons. He heard the words and saw the wagons. Well, obviously, the wagons would have been a big motivator. They went down with enough money to buy grain, not enough money to buy 
an extra 20 donkeys filled with grain and all these wagons. So that would have been clue number one. But also it says that when they told him all the words of Joseph, they'd spoken to them. Now Moses, when he writes this, is very kind to the brothers. He doesn't say, and they confessed their sin to their dad. But if they did indeed tell him all the words of Joseph, then they included these words where Joseph told the brothers we saw, Joseph said, I'm your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So if indeed, like the text says, they said to their father all the words of Joseph, then that would have had to include their confession. They would have had to have owned up to the fact they lied all this time. And after saying that, their, their father's spirit revives. And notice the text is plain. It says the father Jacob revived. And then it says, then Israel said. Jacob and Israel are the same man. God renamed Jacob Israel. Jacob means the deceiver, one who grasps at the heel. Uh, Israel means one who strives with God. And so God changed Jacob's name from the deceiver to one who, who strives with God. And, and that's a compliment. That's not, one, that's not a, anything negative, one who strives with God. That's a good thing. But changes his name. And you see when Jacob's attitude changes, it's almost like the barometer of his spiritual life is the name by which uh, the Bible calls him. If he's doing a good job, then he is Israel. If he's not doing a good job, he's Jacob. And so the name, you see him being called by a different name. And he believes and he's willing now to go down. And now look at chapter 46, the first several verses in this, they go down to Egypt. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba, offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry them. And they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And then from verse 8 all the way down to verse 27, the sons and grandsons and all the granddaughters and everyone are listed here, sons of Jacob and their sons, their children, are listed and then the end of verse 27, we're told all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Then he says, now, now he sent Judah on before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen, and Joseph prepared his chariot when they get there fast, and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. I was interested to read last month regarding the grain elevator that exploded up in Kansas. If you watched any of that on the news, you probably saw the fire chief, Ken Cox, who uh, was kind of briefing the reporters and whatnot. And there was another uh, woman who saw... Uh, this fire chief 
And lo and behold, it was the fire chief's daughter, whom he had not seen in 20 years. He and his wife had divorced, hadn't seen. He hadn't seen his daughter in 20 years, and over the course of moving around a thousand times, they had lost touch. And the daughter had been searching for the dad for 14 years. And so, and he said he had just given up uh, even trying to find after 20 years of not being able to find her. Well, he's on TV, and his daughter sees him and recognizes him, recognizes the name, obviously, and and says, wow, this is my dad, and so it gives him a call, and they were able to get together. And I thought it was uncanny how the this story and this story were so similar, and that there was a gap of about 20 years between the father and the child seeing one another. Uh, there was even grain involved in the story. But I liked the phrase that Chief Cox said, Speaking of the, the tragedy there in Kansas, he says, as tragic as this is, he said, something good came out of it. And uh, wow, what an understatement that is. Imagine being apart from your child for that long and then through this tragedy, being able to be reunited with them. You see the same thing happening here with Joseph. This, this reunion, uh, I don't know that any of us, perhaps... Uh, Ken Cox and his daughter could somewhat tell you what it feels like to be separated that long, but I don't know that we could understand what it would be like to be apart from your child. You know, it's one thing for Jacob to believe Joseph's dead, okay? In his mind, there's closure. I'll never see him again. But then there's Joseph wondering, is my father still alive? In fact, it's the first thing out of his mouth we saw last week when he finally confesses to the brothers, or finally says to the brothers, I'm Joseph, is my father alive? You can see his heart been longing for all these years to be united with his father, and finally he's able to, and we're told that for a long time they weep on each other's neck. You see Joseph crying all over the place. And you know what? I think that's great. I'm so glad that through the trials that he's been through, it didn't embitter him to where he couldn't be a real person. You know, I, I knew a guy for a long, long time who almost boasted that he never cried. And, uh, you know, I never really took that. That never really impressed me. Because uh, crying is like a drain pipes for your emotions. You see uh, Joseph doing this all over the place. And in fact, this isn't the last time. We're going to see the very last chapter of Genesis. He cries again. It's a wonderful way for a man to express his emotions. In fact, the average man, I'm told, cries once a month. Uh, the average woman cries more times than that a month. But uh, it's interesting. Well, how can we apply this text about moving or about changing that God brings into our lives? We all have these moving experiences, and if you haven't, you will. Because God is committed to changing you. That's why you're not dead. Uh, he has left you here to change you and through you to change uh, this planet for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. But initially, change may not seem favorable. In fact, most of the time it's not. We're like that horse. We don't want to change from our routine. We get upset when it is. I like the way J.N. Darby translates verse 20. Uh, it says, and Pharaoh was speaking to the brothers. He says, and let not your eye regret your stuff. For the good of all the land of Egypt shall be yours. King James in the Amer Old American Standard Version also translated stuff. 
And I like that because that, that's good. And I like also the way Darby translates. The only one I really see it does it literally. Let not your eye regret it. Just don't look back on it with regret. But rather move forward, come down to Egypt. Don't regret leaving your stuff. And I don't know how many times that all of us are so hesitant to move forward in our walks with God because of our stuff. Be it uh, a past relationship, be it actually stuff, uh, I mean physical stuff that we're afraid to leave. You know, I know some folks that have got everything, they've, they keep everything they've ever gotten. Are you one of those? You savor? Well, I tell you what, sometimes when my wife isn't looking, is she here? I don't think she's here. Okay, good. Sometimes when my wife isn't looking, I will throw toys away that my children get that are uh, little toys, you know, the, the little ones that don't matter. I'll take them and I'll throw them in the trash. And you know what? They're never missed. No one ever says, Hi, sweetie. <laughs> well, so can I have lunch with you all today? They're never missed. No one ever says, hey, did you see that little bitty thing that you stepped on last week? No. No one ever misses it. But some folks save everything. And uh, for the sake of our stuff, sometimes we will, we will not move forward in our walk with the Lord. But even, even more seriously, though, there are some folks, and I myself, we're all like this. I guess I should say we all are like this. Not just some folks, but... We will hesitate to change when God puts a circumstance in our lives, especially initially if it doesn't look to be favorable. We'll hesitate to start walking down that road because we would prefer the, the pain of the past or the pain of our present situation, our stuff, rather than the unknown, maybe, release of that pain in the future. We prefer familiar pain to unknown relief. Because with familiar pain, at least we can control it. At least we feel we're in control. That's why sometimes addicts have such, a trouble, have such trouble getting out of that cycle. And why the guilt just spirals them down further and further and further. But at least it's familiar. The unknown change of getting out of that cycle is terrifying, though they can't imagine continuing in it. God is committed to changing our lives. And the first and biggest way that He's committing to do that is by the incredible change that happens in a legal sense when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. When you believe that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins and that He rose again on the third day, the Bible tells us that your sins are forgiven and that you are justified that moment in the sight of God. And in the sight of God, you will never be more holy than you are for that moment. You are justified immediately. Though you don't see angels, though you don't hear voices, though lightning doesn't strike, you may have heard nothing, uh, you may have had no emotional experience, and yet the Bible tells us if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There is a change when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. A change that is incredible. In the sight of God, it is a complete change from black to white. And yet, in our lives, we are slowly coming, in a practical sense, what is true of us in a legal sense or a technical sense, you might say. 
God sees us holy because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Place our faith in Jesus Christ. God sees us as holy as Jesus Christ. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. But we still sin. We are in a slow progress. The Bible tells us that he is, uh, that he is committed to transform Christians into Christ's likeness. That he will cause all things to work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And what is that good? That they might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the good that he works all these evil situations we're going through to that end. God is committed to changing in your life. And so the sooner we get used to that, the better we'll be that when God begins to bring change into our lives and we don't resist it, if we know it's from him, like Joseph. Now, I'm not saying that he was jumping up and down happy in the prison or jumping up and down happy uh, as a slave. But at the same time, we know that God was with him and that he knew that God was not finished with him. Initially, change may not seem favorable. We're told in the great book of Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There's only two options there. You will be changed. You'll either be conformed to the world or you can let yourself be transformed to the image of the Lord Jesus by the renewal of your mind. Only two options. Health is growth physically and spiritually. Health is growth and growth is change. And God is committed to bringing that, those kind of situations into our lives. And we can submit to that and be transformed, or we can resist that and have to go through some pain before we will initially be transformed. But God's going to do His purpose in your life. By hook or by crook, His will will be done in your life. And God knows we struggle against this. The Psalms tell us He knows that we are uh, but dust. He is mindful of our frame, that we are but dust. He understands we struggle against change. And so he gives us some very clear indicators in the scriptures and indicators in our lives when he is initiating change so that we can more easily, more readily submit to him even if it's difficult. And the first thing, even we see this in our story, is that God initiates change through the wise counsel of others. We see this all throughout the scriptures. In Proverbs, we're, we're told this, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. We're told that plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. We're told, for by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Notice, over and over and over we're told, abundance of counselors, many advisors. God initiates change through the wise counsel of others. Now notice I didn't say other or another. It is, it is abundance of counselors. I mean, you can go off and find anybody that can tell you what you want to hear. But if you want to discern the Lord's will in your life, you will be available to listen to the wise counsel of several, of the abundance of trusted, wise people. This is what happened in the story. We saw last week, Joseph said, Hurry, go up to my father, say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God's made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. This week, Pharaoh said, uh, said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts, go to the land of Canaan, take your father and your household, and come to me. I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt. First, Joseph says, come to Egypt. Then Pharaoh says, 
Come to Egypt. You have wise counsel, both in agreement. There's a scripture that I really like in Proverbs that says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. The thought being, if you want to be a lone ranger Christian, if you don't ever want to get involved in uh, the lives of other people, but you just want it to be you and Jesus, then you're not living in a biblical manner. You are not designed to be autonomous. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are not the body of Christ. He is the head. You are a hand. Some of us are a mouth. Some of us are feet, etc. We all have a function and we need one another. You cannot be by yourself. The proverb says you separate yourself. You seek your own desire. And we're told that plans are frustrated without the abundance of counselors. So... When you feel like God is initiating change in your life, you want to seek wise counsel from several trusted people. Don't separate yourself to your own frustration. An additional way we see in the story is that God initiates change through obvious circumstances. Remember, initially Jacob was stunned, we're told. He didn't believe them. But notice, when they told him all the words Joseph had spoken to him, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry them, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it's enough, my son Joseph's alive, I will go and see him before I die. His initial disbelief was turned into confidence that God was guiding him because of obvious circumstances. You don't give your sons enough money to bring back grain, and they come back with grain and 20 other donkeys and wagons. And Benjamin comes home with five sets of clothes and all that silver. The circumstance was obvious, plus the words that were spoken make it obvious. Uh, Brian and Lori last week found out that the house that they've been renting now for two years, the owner wants to sell it, and he wanted them to leave next month. And so, uh, obviously, this kind of puts them in kind of a stressful situation with Lori being pregnant and all. Um, they're due in October, and, and how would you like to move in August and be pregnant? This is a bummer. We did this. We moved in August. Kathy was... No, she wasn't. She wasn't pregnant. Well, it was still a bummer. We moved in August. We had a new baby. <laughs> I knew there was something with the child that made it hard. But uh, so Brian and Lori uh, looked around to see other places they could rent. Nothing available um, that was comparable, etc. And finally came to realize that God was moving in this situation and causing this initial stress to motivate them, the opportunity they had to buy the house they were living in. So they wouldn't have to move. And now, uh, instead of renting, they own. And God had all, also sovereignly worked to where they had the, the money saved up to do that. But, the, but my point is the circumstance was obvious for them. In, in fact, it was kind of humorous. Brian told me he had prayed earlier in the year for God to let him know if, uh, if he wanted them to buy a house this year or not. Well, lo and behold, uh, the, the circumstances made it obvious. That he did. And finally, an, another additional way is that God initiates change through his word, graciously reassuring us of his presence. Now, I hope you've noticed I've said an additional way, and then I, I said an additional way, I haven't said an optional way. I think that God guides us through these three areas the counsel of others, obvious circumstances, and through the scriptures. And Jacob, I think. He had the first two. He had the counsel of others and the circumstances made it pretty clear. But he still hadn't had a word from God on this major move. 
Now, they didn't have a Bible then that he could read. In fact, God had told them the promised land is where they are to be. So he probably felt a little uneasy about leaving the promised land to go down to uh, uh, Egypt in a time of famine. His granddad Abraham did that and got his hand slapped. So he may feel a little hesitant about doing this. So God encourages him through the word, graciously reassuring him. He says in uh, verse 3, chapter 46, he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you to a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. Now, if you think about this. If you have lived, let's say you've lived in Denton all your life, and maybe some of you have. And if you haven't, pretend you have, okay? 30, 40, 50, 60 plus years you've lived in the same town. You've seen it change. You've seen all kinds of things happen, but you've lived here. How would you feel if your children were to come to you one day and were to say, uh, Dad, I think that the Lord wants us to move to Brazil. Well, would you be real comfortable with that? No. I know you wouldn't. We struggle and chafe having to move from a place that we've lived there two years. And so God graciously comes to him and gives him this guidance. And I say this again because God knows that we need this. And so if you will read your Bible, it's amazing how God can guide you. It, now, he spoke to him and says, I want you to go to Egypt. I'm not saying that you're going to flip this open and he's going to say, I want you to move to San Antonio and work for Texas Instruments. It's not going to say that in here. But you will be able to be guided on motives or purposes or however the Lord wants to guide you through the Scriptures and, and reassuring you of His will. And as you're in that struggle of wondering or perhaps hesitant to follow God's leading in a change, the things He told Jacob are some things you and I would do very well to take to heart. The first being, I am God. That's the first thing he told him. I am God. This is who you're dealing with. This change that I want you to bring about in your life, I am still God. Therefore, he tells him, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Do not be afraid. This change that I'm bringing in your life, don't be afraid. I am God. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. And the next thing he tells him is, I'll make you a great nation there, not here. Again, this is the beginning of the fulfillment that he made to his, the promise he made to his great-granddad Abraham to have an incredible number of descendants. They go down with 70 people and you see in the book of Exodus as they come out, a nation of uh, several million over the course of 400 years. I will make you a great nation there. You've got to be willing to go where God leads if you want God's blessing and God's growth in your life. He wants to take you where He's leading you that you may be blessed. Not that you may... What we want to do, we want to stay in our comfortable rut. Say, Lord, just bless me here. Don't cause me to change. I don't want to have to grow. Just bless me here. Well, He may not want to do that. He may want you to actually grow not just to bless us where we are. And I love the last phrase that he says, the gracious reassurance. He says, I will go down with you. When God is call calling you to make a change in your life, you need to know you are not by yourself. When God moved Joseph to Egypt, we're told God was with him. As a result of God being with him, he rose to the top of the ladder as, as a slave in Potiphar's house. 
And then even when he went to prison, we were told God is with him. As a result of that, he rose to the top of the ladder. Now, I'm not saying if you follow God's will, you're going to make a million bucks. Joseph didn't uh, in the prison and in the pit. What I'm saying is that if you follow God's will, that's where God's blessing is. That's where you begin to fulfill God's purpose for your life rather than just staying in the same old rut that you're in. And initially, the change, we don't like it. But the change that he brings, he tells us, don't be afraid. I will go there with you. Now, I want to speak plainly to you because I know it. God is calling some of you to change. And you know he is. Area of your life that you have been dodging for years. And every time God starts pulling on your rein, you jerk your head back. You stay in that rut. i tell you what, God is a lot stronger than you and me. And He is able to get us out of that rut and pull us out of that rut if we have to. Giving up the control of your life is something that you will eventually do. It's something God can eventually convince you of. We like to be in control. We don't like change, so we can be in control. But the fact is, we're not in control. God is. He told Jacob, I am God. You are not God. I am God. I am in control. And you may say, well, I have tried to change. I want you to know that the point of change, the point of victory for this family took 22 years of hardship for this moment. Okay? Don't quit. There were some bad decisions this family made that God worked in spite of them, granted. But they still had to walk through the slog and the mud that they chose to go in. And you know what? Turning around and walking out of the swamp, you still got to slog through some mud to get out. But God is with you. God's calling you to change. Do not resist His voice. And know that as He guides you through the counsel of others, as He guides you through obvious circumstances and through the Bible, remember what He told Jacob, as you're afraid. I am God. Do not be afraid where I'm leading you. I will bless you there where I want to take you. And I will be with you. Let's pray together. Lord, this message strikes close to home because all of us like to just stay put. We don't like change unless it's the change we initiate and the change we initiate is always an improvement in our minds. It's never to Egypt. It's never to prison. It's never being falsely accused. It's never anything bad. And Lord, we wonder sometimes how it could possibly be part of your will that we would have to go through some of these things. And yet you tell us, I am God. I will go with you. I will bless you there. Do not be afraid. So strengthen us today with this promise. The Lord Jesus, the last thing he told us before he ascended, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. We cling to that and thank you that the Lord Jesus is with us. Thank you that the Holy Spirit 
indwells his believers, that we are not alone. As we walk through the mire, you're with us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.